Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Vessalatu vesselamu ala eşrafil enbiyai vel mursalin. Seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve ashabihi ecma'in. So we're beginning the, uh, the season of these uh, lectures on the fifth pillar, which is the pillar of, of the Hajj uh, at Cambridge Muslim College. And over the next few days, we've got uh, uh, a bouquet to offer you of various uh, fragrant perfumes from the uh, extraordinary cornucopia that is what turns out to be not just the fifth, but uh, in many ways an extraordinarily profound and complex pillar that raises so many questions, not of fiqh alone, but of sirah and of tafsir and of uh, theology as well and doctrine and, and in a sense encapsulates the very meaning of the Islam as uh, al-millat al-hanifiyya, the, the primordial Abrahamic religion. So what I'm going to do just to uh, set the ball rolling today is to talk about some uh, some generic issues and to, as it were, produce some mood music just to uh, put us in the zone because uh, the Hajj is to do, first of all, with a kind of magnetism. Imam al-Ghazali, rahmatullahi when he talks about uh, the Asrar al-Hajj, the secrets of the Hajj in his Ihya, says that it all begins with al-ishtiyaqu ila al-bayt, the longing for the house. Not even niya, but a kind of longing. It's even pre-intentional, pre-rational. It's a kind of desire of the part for the whole, a kind of magnetic impulse, a kind of uh, gravitational force, but one that brings us to, to reality. Uh, and in order to get us back into that zone, we'll begin, inshallah, with the relevant uh, Quranic uh, verses, uh, because uh, the Quran is uh, the last word literally, and um, I just found today our CMC copy of uh, the British Mus'haf, alhamdulillah. It's great that uh, the most beautiful Qurans in the world, more or less, are being designed and, and created in this country. Now, this is by Dawood Sutton, and it's really a treasure if you can get it. There's different versions. I remember how difficult it was in the Middle East when I first arrived there to find a really beautiful copy of the Qur'an. I found that really strange, but alhamdulillah, things have moved on in 30, 40 years, and uh, even we British Muslims are producing these these wonders, uh, very easy to read uh, as well. <coughs> so this is uh, the initial uh, passage from, from Al-Baqarah. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytani rajim Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Wa'idh ja'alna al-bayta mathabatan lin-nasi wa'amna wa'attakhidhu min maqami Ibrahima musalla وَعَهِدْنَا إِلَىٰ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْمَعِيلَ أَنْ طَاهِرَا بَيْتِيَ لِلطَّائِفِينَ وَالْعَاكِفِينَ وَالْرُكَّعِ السُّجُودِ And when we appointed the house as a place of resort for mankind and a place of sanctuary, and take as a place of worship the standing place of Ibrahim, and we took a pledge from Ibrahim and Ismail to purify my house for those who go around it, and those who stand in worship, and those who bow down, and those who prostrate. وَإِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ رَبِّجْ عَلْ هَذَا بَلَدًا آمِنًا وَرَزُقْ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ مَنْ آمَنَ مِنْهُمْ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ قَالَ وَمَنْ كَفَرَ فَأُمَتِّعُهُ قَلِيلًا ثُمَّ أَضْطَرُّهُ إِلَىٰ عَذَابِ النَّارِ وَبِئْسَ الْمَصِيرِ 
And when Ibrahim said, this is famous Dua, O my Lord, make this uh, township or this place, this land, safe and bestow upon its people fruits. Whoever amongst them believes in Allah and the last day. And he said, and whoever disbelieves, I shall give him brief respite and then certainly compel him to the punishment of the fire, an evil place of resort. وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلِ رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ And when Ibrahim and Ismail raised up the foundations of the house, our Lord, accept this from us, truly you are the hearing and the knowing. رَبَّنَا وَجْعَلْنَا مُسْلِمَيْنِ لَكَ وَمِنْ ذُرِّيَّتِنَا أُمَّةً مُسْلِمَةً لَكَ وَأَرِنَا مَنَاسِكَنَا وَتُبْ عَلَيْنَا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ التَّوَّابُ الرَّحِيمُ Our Lord, and make us believers in you, submitters to you, and of our offspring, of our descendants, a community that is submitted to you, and show us our ways of devotion, and relent towards us. Truly you are the Tawab al-Rahim, the acceptor of repentance, and the merciful. رَبَّنَا وَبْعَثْ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِكَ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ O our Lord, and raise amongst them a messenger from amongst themselves who will recite your verses to them and teach them the book and the wisdom and purify them. Truly you are the mighty, the wise. وَمَنْ يَرْغَبُ عَمْ مِلَّةِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ إِلَّا مَنْ سَفِهَ نَفْسَهُ وَلَقَدْ اسْتَفَيْنَاهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَإِنَّهُ فِي الْآخِرَةِ لَمِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ And whoever turns away from the way of Ibrahim, uh, he is one who has made a fool of himself. And we have chosen him in the world and in the next world he shall be amongst the, the pure, the righteous. So... Uh, in these verses, we get uh, a summary of what this is all about. Uh, it is a place of safety for mankind, a place of resort for mankind. It is Abrahamic. It is a place of du'a. Uh, it is a sanctuary. The haram is a sanctuary, that very powerful word. Haram linked to haram. In other words, that which is set aside as being beyond uh, levels of permissibility and taboo. So uh, this is where, from the point of view of the Ummah of Islam, it begins. Uh, but one of the complexities of the Hajj is that it is not only Islamic in the specific sense, but it is archaic, primordial, prehistoric. And one of the things we need to get our heads around as we begin our, as it were, tawaf around this subject is to try and see what it is that Islam is here Abrahamically restoring from that which is archaic. <clears throat> because after all, the Hajj doesn't seem to be biblical, doesn't seem to be associated with any of those Sunday school stories. This is something different, but as we'll see, it's something that is ultimately even pre-biblical and, and Adamic. So if we look at the historians, and what I want to do uh, today particularly is to 
to do this by reading our text so that we stay very close to the uh, sources and particularly the, the early sources. The first great historian of Islam really is Imam Tabari. And this is the famous story, uh, one of the pre-stories, as it were, of the, the Hajj. You think, when does it begin? Does it begin with the final pilgrimage? Does it begin with Qusay? Does it begin with Ismail and Hajar? Does it begin with Nuh? Does it begin with Adam? Does it begin before Adam? There's different ways of going back in time in order to get a sense of where the story of the, the city and the rituals begin. <clears throat> so this is Tabari, the famous uh, story of the apparent contestation between Sarah and Hajar. So this great Abrahamic bifurcation, which is to define uh, in extraordinary ways that, inshallah, we'll get back to at the end of this talk, um, the, the, the nature of the economy of, of Abrahamic salvation. Sarah said, she will not live in the same town with me. This is Tabari. God told Abraham to go to Mecca, where there was no house at that time. He took Hajar and her son to Mecca and put them there. According to Mujahid and other scholars, when God pointed out to Abraham the place of the house and told him how to build the sanctuary, he set out to do the job and Gabriel went with him. It was said that whenever he passed a town, he would ask, is this the town which God's command meant, O Gabriel? And Gabriel would say, pass it by. At last they reached Makkah, which at that time was nothing but acacia trees, mimosa and thorn bushes. And there was a people called Amalekites outside Mecca and its surroundings. The house at that time was about a hill of red clay. Abraham said to Gabriel, was it here that I was ordered to leave them? <laughs> Gabriel said, yes. Abraham directed Hajar and Ishmael to go to Al-Hijr and settle them down there. He commanded Hajar, the mother of Ismail, to find shelter there. Then he said, my Lord, I have settled some of my posterity in an uncultivable valley near your holy house, that they may be thankful. Then he journeyed back to his family in Syria, leaving the two of them at the house. So we know this extraordinary, as it were, second sacrifice. We know the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim and his son and his commandment to sacrifice his son, but this is like another commandment to sacrifice his son Ismail because he seems to be leaving them in this desert scrubland with these Amalekites prowling to what must have seemed like certain death. And then we know the story. Then Ismail became very thirsty. His mother looked for water for him, but could not find any. She listened for sounds to help her find water for him. She heard a sound at a sofa and went there to look around, but found nothing. Then she heard a sound from the direction of Al Marwa. She went there and looked around, looked around and saw nothing. Some also say that she stood on a sofa praying to God for water for Ismail, and then went to Al Marwa to do the same. Then she heard the sounds of beasts in the valley where she had left Ismail. She ran to him, she thinks there's some animal attacking her child, and found him scraping the water from a spring which had burst forth from beneath his hand and drinking from it. Ismail's mother came to it and made it swampy. She kind of stomped it and made it muddy. Then she drew water from it into her water skin to keep it for Ismail. Had she not done that, the waters of Zamzam would have gone on flowing to the surface forever. We all know this sort of almost uh, 
nursery story in a sense. It's one of the first things that we hear about uh, Islam and this pre-foundation and uh, the centrality of Hajar in it. Um, it's said that she is the only woman known to have instituted an obligatory practice in any world religion because the Safa and Marwa um, is instantiated by herself and um, uh, represents the, the, the high principle of maternal sacrifice. And so the Hajj from that prehistory then goes into uh, the practice of Islam with the purification of the temple and then having been about the most obscure out-of-the-way place on earth it becomes the world's leading pilgrimage center. A kind of spiritual silk road connects it to everywhere in the abode of Islam and beyond. Uh, you can see classical maps of the Islamic world with Mecca at the center and everybody's heart was connected to Mecca because they were facing it five times a day and they all yearned to see the Kaaba before they died and it even affected the demography. So uh, in Sudan for instance along a kind of straight line you can see it in an ethnic map of Sudan there's little communities of Hausa speakers and these are people who come from what's now Nigeria hundreds of years ago walking sideways uh, east to west across the Sahara Desert to get to Mecca walking and then on the way back they think another 3,000 miles of walking barefoot across sand dunes I'm going to stay here and so they form these Hausa speaking communities in, in the Sudan and they're still there and that's uh, the case with the demography of the people of Mecca whose DNA has shown are inconceivably diverse um, every possible bit of the Ummah is there in their blood and across the Islamic world and it becomes kind of a, a heart the Ummah comes to Mecca every year and is dispersed again and is this vital hub for the sharing of information um, until very recent times the Haram in Mecca was like a university and every scholar who got there early for the Hajj would be there teaching and sharing books it, it had over 30 libraries it was an astonishing place the city of Mecca um, an astonishing place uh, and uh, that's the power of monotheism that's the power of the heel of Ismail as it were Zamzam comes and um, the, the miracle begins and uh, I, one of the genres that we have that hopefully will contribute to this mood that I wanted to start with this reverential longing for the house uh, this yearning that the believer has to see the Kaaba to touch the Kaaba to go back to that place so many great travelers tales give us quite a good image of um, how things were in the uh, classical Islamic world. One I like is Ibn Jubayr, who is from Valencia, uh, 13th century, uh, who has the famous Rehla, which is a travel book. So <coughs> here's his famous account of uh, what it was like, eyewitness account in the 13th century. This assemblage of people of Iraq, Khorasan and Mosul, as well as those of other countries who have joined them to accompany the Amir of the Hajj, made up a crowd whose number is known to God alone. The vast plain at Khulais was filled with them and the flat immensity of the desert was too narrow to encompass them. You could imagine the earth attempting to maintain its balance under the crowd's heaving and waves streaming from the force of its currents. You could picture in this crowd a sea swollen with waves whose waters were the mirages and whose ships were the camels, their sails, the lofty litters and round tents. They all went forward gliding in and out of a great rising of clouds of dust, their sides colliding as they passed. 
On the immense extent of the plain, you could see the thrust of a crowd filled with pain and fright and the knocking together of litters. Who has not seen with his own eyes this Iraqi caravan has not experienced one of the genuine marvels of the world, worth the effort of describing and whose telling can seduce the listener by its marvellous character. And the physical spectacle of the Hajj, having been the place just of the forlorn Hajar and her son, by God's power, becomes the place that half the world wants to see and strives and spends their life's savings trying to see and these huge seas of humanity. Uh, and it is, to this day, the world's largest multicultural gathering, the Hajj. There's larger pilgrimages in Hindu India, but they're mono-ethnic. They're for Indians, whereas the Hajj is um, the entire world seems to be there. So another one uh, that I particularly like, uh, one of my favourite books is a biography of now, who was the first British Muslim who went to Hajj and left us with an account? Well, um, it seems uh, that the first one who actually uh, had their Hajj recorded subsequently is Abdullah Williamson, who when he was only, oh, I guess, about 22 or 23, um, uh, converted to Islam. He was from Bristol and uh, gave us uh, an amazing description of the Hajj in the time uh, before modernity, really. So he's seeing the end of the world that Ibn Jubair has described. So he's kind of, he dies, I think, in about 1960, so he's part of our modernity. But he sees the Hajj before the truck, before the motorway, before Burger King. He sees the, the spectacle of it. <coughs> and I really like his, uh, his, his account of it. He is travelling, it takes 40 days, on the famous Darab Zubayda, which is one of the Hajj roads from uh, Iraq, um, where he's uh, found work, uh, down this ancient road built by Zubayda, who is the wife of Harun al-Rashid, and you can still see the cisterns and the fortresses that she built um, uh, along the road. So he's, he's doing this medieval thing, but in the 1890s, the camping area allotted to Williamson and his followers was close to the Amir's tent. There's always an Amir al-Hajj, and each of these groups that comes, and with each town they go through, the numbers grow. Uh, and there's always the Bayrak, which is the famous flag. So if you get lost in the desert, the flag is held really high, and it's white with a crescent, and it has La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. It's about 10 feet long. And at night, there's a kind of globe lantern suspended from it. So if you're lost in the desert at night, you can find your way back to the caravan, so he's with the Amir, uh, and he's near to the Amir. This had special advantage for the young devotee, since it enabled him to join the concourse of elders after the evening meal, and to listen to whatever wisdom and law fell from their venerable lips. Occasionally a mullah would deliver a short sermon, or a singer chant verses from the Quran and praise of the Holy Prophet. Always sheer enjoyment to young Abdullah Williamson, whose knowledge of Arabic enabled him to follow most of the discourse without difficulty. And then he talks about, because he's kind of young and this is an amazing sight. Uh, and so this uh, caravan, which when it leaves Zubair, which is where he's starting in Iraq, is already about 3,000 camels long. And if you stop at the beginning and you sit, it takes an hour for the whole caravan to go by. So he's always doing this. And then he's got a good camel, so he gets to the end and he can ride up to the, to the front. So it took a full hour to pass and a rare spectacle was presented by that desert parade upon which Williamson feasted his eyes with never-failing interest. Following the standard-bearer, drummer and Emir's entourage came the main cavalcade of pilgrims, 
more than 3,000 of them with their hundreds of riding and pack camels. Most of the company were men, and for intermittent spells, many marched stolidly beside the animals. Among those who rode were heavily veiled women and the children, making this hallowed journey to the beloved city. Often the attitude of men perched camelback on their belongings suggested easy sleep. Numbers of camels bore the chardouf, a kind of howdah draped over by a carpet or other covering, or the more fanciful shubraya, curtained with brocade and softly cushioned within. Here and there, two animals carried between them a woven reed litter in which the fortunate owner reposed peacefully to the swaying motion. At night, under the white moon, and when the southern cross hung low in the sky, there was a mystical fascination about the shuffling progress of the great caravan. Another scene that became indelibly etched in young Williamson's mind was the nocturnal halt when hundreds of campfires illuminated the desert with their orange glow. Unforgettable days of purposeful travel punctuated by the call to prayer and always the hope of the Muslim's supreme spiritual experience at the journey's end. There you get a sense just of the sheer bubbling up power of monotheism that from the well of, of Hajar and Ismail, this one of the world's great institutions that's transforming so many lives, is continuing and of course um, continues uh, to this day, uh, this year uh, rather diminished but uh, the Hajj is a permanent fixture of, of God's world. So, yeah, there's, there's other accounts. It's interesting to reflect on how many British Muslims from our community have actually done this. Um, a lot of people like the travelogue of Mubarak Churchwood. And when I was in Johannesburg a couple of years ago, I managed to find his grave. He, he was from uh, uh, London, but uh, ended his life in uh, South Africa. And he left us with a really beautiful account of life in Mecca and the rituals during the Ottoman period. That's his book, um, From Drury Lane to Mecca, which is, is very charming. Uh, it's worth looking at. Uh, Lady Evelyn Cobbold is, is another one. But nobody knows who was the first uh, British Muslim to go to those places. Um, uh, we know that there was somebody called Thomas Keith, who was born in Edinburgh, who was one of those sort of very improbable adventurers. At the time of the Napoleonic Wars, he was with one of the Highland regiments, uh, but ended up joining the Ottoman army in Egypt and fought a duel with another janissary, another Ottoman soldier who was of Sicilian origin. Tend to forget how European the Ottoman Empire was. They fight a duel, which is not legal in the Ottoman world. They get into trouble. Uh, and somehow he manages to get a letter from the wife of the governor of Egypt, Muhammad Ali Pasha, saying, let him off, but send him off on active duty. Uh, and so he joins Tosun Pasha's Egyptian expedition, uh, which leaves at the beginning of, more or less, I guess, in 1814, 1815, in order to crush the Wahhabi rebellion, the first Wahhabi rebellion in, in Central Arabia, and they succeed in crushing it. And as a result of services rendered, Thomas Keith, who by this time is Ibrahim Aga, is actually appointed to be the governor, the wali of the city of Medina. It's interesting, you see the cosmopolitanism of, that was also a globalized world, if you're willing to travel and take risks, um, uh, anything could, any door could open to you. So I like to think of the Scottish Muslim who was the, the governor of, of the Holy Prophet city, and presumably he went to Mecca as well. And we may assume um, that he, uh, did his Hajj. Uh, there's a book about him by the sort of uh, rather popular novelist uh, Sutcliffe, Rosamond Rosemary Sutcliffe, uh, Blood and Sand, which is a kind of dramatised account of 
his sort of rags to riches story. Um, in 1815, unfortunately, he was assassinated by the Wahhabis who were carrying out a kind of terror campaign and killing scholars and Ottoman governors. So I guess he achieved Shahada, but anyway, what a great story. Um, but the whole point of this is the centrality of the city, despite its remoteness uh, and its aridity and the fact that the hearts of the believers have been attached to it for so long. Now, of course, we have in our libraries a superabundance of writing about the Hajj, not just the rules of the Hajj, which are important because it's, it's ritualized, and if you don't get the rules right, you miss Arafah or something, you've basically you have to come back the next year, which in pre-modern times was <laughs> just meant you had to wait for a year uh, in the times before, before the Airbus. Uh, and the rules are very significant because one is approaching uh, one of God's uh, great sanctuaries and symbols. So the Qur'an urges us to have ta'zim sha'airillah, uh, uh, a reverence for Allah's rituals and, and visual symbols. And this is linked to the actual name for the Hajj itself. Everybody says when they start doing their hafs, they do surah Jujus Amma first, and then a few surahs in the middle, surah Al Mulk, Waqi'ah, Yasin, and so forth. And then they go start from from Al Baqarah. So they get to this verse quite soon. Walillahi ala nasi hijjul bait, and I think is that a misprint in the Quran. Hijjul bait. I never heard anybody calling it hijj, but it's there. And in other places, it's hajj. Both of these are valid, and you find the grammarians uh, talking about the difference. The hij is the ism, and the hajj is the mustar, technically, which means uh, something like uh, the, the hij is the, the fact, the event itself. The hajj is the doing of the ceremony. It's more, more active. But uh, some in our tradition will also say uh, that it is to do with uh, the, as it were, horizontal and vertical dimensions of the Hajj, or the inward and the outward. Uh, and this is, this is quite common um, amongst Ottoman writers on, on the Hajj in particular. But we also find this root, Ha-jim-jim, gives us other common words, such as Hodja. Hodja means an argument. So there is a sense, uh, semantically, in which not only is this a journey, Hajj Hodja in Arabic originally means to travel to a place, uh, but also an argument. In other words, something is being proved as a result of this. So it's educational uh, and convincing. And what is the, the proof? Well, that's really what I want to try and get at um, and what some of uh, my colleagues will be talking about in the next few days. What deep down is going on in the Hajj? What is the alchemy that it brings about? Why do we have this longing for it? Is it just, oh, well, I've done my pillar? Um, no, it's more than that. We know that there is something about the Kaaba and about those rituals that represents the fulfilling of a need that is not just ticking a box, but is some kind of rather deep need. Um, what is that? Well, this is not a matter of aqidah, and it's not a matter of fiqh, but of course the Muslims have really tried to conceptualize this. And if you're explaining the importance of these things to non-Muslims, um, it really helps to know what the Ummah has said about the meaning of these things. And these rituals, of course, are not meaningless. Uh, and the believer, 
as he does these things, is well aware that some kind of uh, combination lock is being turned within his soul and something is going to open. Uh, and that's really what I want to look at. And uh, some of our writers say that it is about the Quranic verse that says, La malja'a min Allah illa ilay. There is no uh, refuge from God but to him. Uh, in other words, it's to do with the federal ilallah, flee to God. So we are travelling from something false to something true, from the bad aspect of our lives and the complexity and the overwhelmings, back to something that represents primal simplicity. And nothing is more simple than the Kaaba itself in all the history of art and music and sculpture. Nothing more simple than the black, almost invisible cube, uh, its primordiality itself. Um, uh, we crave the journey from the many to the one. So there's no refuge from God except in him. Uh, in the complexity of his world, full of kathra, multiplicity, we seek wahda, because multiplicity is, is complicated even though our desires are multiple, but it's not deep down what we want. So, uh, clearly the Hajj is about a human yearning, which is very deep, sub-rational, elemental. It's a kind of love, in a sense, and very often the Kaaba is compared to the uh, paradigmatic um, Arabic beloved Layla in our literature, the Black Veil and so forth. This is a kind of sense of the feminine beloved there, which some of our poets will like, a, a sense that we want to return. It's about nostalgia. We want to go from the edge to the center, from complexity to simplicity, and from the brokenness of our own selves back to the wholeness of the place of origin. So getting back to this idea of the Hajj having a horizontal and a vertical dimension, so the horizontal is the obligation and the fiqh and making sure that you follow the fiqh exactly and you have to be attentive because it's all new and you don't want to come back next year um, if you can help it. But the vertical dimension, uh, we note that the Kaaba is clearly identified with certain metaphysical principles in a necessarily mysterious way because the unseen world is uh, very hard for us. Uh, the uh, conception of the Isra and the Mi'raj originating by the Kaaba. The Holy Prophet وسلم, is sleeping next to the Kaaba and that's where the spiritual culmination of his career begins. Subhanallah asra bi abdihi min al masjid al haram ila al masjid al aqsa alladhi barakna hawlahu li nuriyahu min ayatina. Blessed, glorified is he who took his slave by night from the sacrosanct sanctuary to the further sanctuary the environs of which we have blessed in order to show him of our signs. So here you have up, there's a verticality here. Uh, it's a kind of, there's the batat, the plain. But when you're there, you really notice what's above. Uh, and one of the meanings of the Kaaba, which originally had no roof, is that whereas other sacred spaces in Islam paradigmatically are a kind of cube with a dome on top, the cube representing the world, the four points of the compass, um, spatiality, 
um, the the dome representing that which is infinite, circular. Uh, but the Kaaba doesn't have a dome. It's had a roof in many periods of its history. Um, Ibrahim's Kaaba, it seems, didn't have a roof. So, as it were, its dome is heaven itself. You look up or you looked up, there are the stars. And before the floodlights and the advertising and the Hilton Hotel and all of that light pollution, it was extraordinary. And if you look at the older narratives of what the Haram was like uh, when it was just oil lamps, at night, it was absolutely astounding, you know, the most, most staggeringly beautiful place on earth. It still is, but it's kind of artificialized, um, in some ways, necessarily, uh, in, other way, in other ways, regrettably. Uh, but the presence of heaven is very, uh, is very palpable there, as it is in Jerusalem at the sanctuary there. Those are the two places on earth where the heart intuitively feels that heaven is, as it were, just a little bit above our heads, you could always reach up and touch it. So, if you look at this text, um, William Trittick recently published a, a translation of Sam'ani, his Rauh al-Arwah, um, Rest for the Spirits, uh, which is a uh, early Persian commentary, Sunni commentary on the, the 99 names. So he has this to say, this is Sam'ani, Know that in reality, Mustafa's Mi'raj did not begin in Mecca or Medina. Rather, it began when, at the outset of his work, they called him Muhammad al-Amin, the Muhammad the Trustworthy. From being Muhammad the Trustworthy, he was pulled to prophethood, and from prophethood he was pulled to messengerhood. Then he advanced in messengerhood until he reached poverty. Faqir. Then he was made to advance further in poverty until he reached indigence. Miskina. Poverty, want, need and indigence were the embroidery on the mystery of his prophethood. Had there been a belt in the beginningless and endless house of good fortune more exalted than the belt of poverty and indigence, it would have been sent to Mustafa so that he could bind it to the waist of the covenant of servanthood. It's, it's tajreed, in other words, stripping away dunya, which is one of the features of the Hajj or should be, that it is an ascetic experience. 40 days in which you basically have to walk from Iraq to Mecca and there's wild animals and it's really basic uh, and you engage with nature and then you wear the ihram which is not particularly comfortable and certainly not stylish and all your dunya stuff has gone. You're in this maqam of, of tajreed, of stripping away of, of poverty. And when dunya is not really around you, that's when you can you can focus and this is one of the secrets of prophecy. When the substance of Allah's Messenger Muhammad rose up and advanced on these steps and ladders, one attraction took his person by way of following from before the gate of the Kaaba to the place of Ibrahim's prostration. From the furthest mosque he was taken with one pull to two bows length. Then the Lord's jealousy let down the exalted curtain before the virgin secrets and gave nothing out to the people save this. He revealed to his servant what he revealed. All the fluent and eloquent speakers stayed empty of this story. Only that paragon of the empire knew the flavour of that wine. For 70,000 years, the folk of the heavens were waiting to see when this man would show his head from the hiding place of the secret. What gift would he bring to the exalted presence? When the night arrived concerning which the splendid book says, 
Glory be to him who took his servant by night. The proximate angels and the cherubim of the higher plenum stuck out their heads from the grazing pl gazing places of glorification and hallowing. How would that paragon stroll into the majestic presence? At the very first step he took at the threshold, he said, I do not number thy laudations, subhanaka la uhsithana an alik, anta kama athneta ala nafsik. You are as you have praised yourself. Inescapably, those who step into that paragon's road with the feet of following will have a mi'raj in the measure of their own present moments. We said concerning their mi'raj that they will reach aspiration by way of need and that they will reach seeking by way of aspiration. So, this again, very characteristic in our civilization, which reminds us that the prayer connects us to the Kaaba in not one but two ways. Firstly, it is our Qibla, and secondly, the prayer was initiated on the night of Al-Isra wal Mi'raj. It is gifted through this vertical dimension of, of the, the Kaaba, and where could be more appropriate than that. So, it is clearly a journey, and it is a spiritual journey. And it's very sad, those people who think, I'm just following the book from the Ministry of Awqaf, and now I've done my Hajj, and now I can put on my suit again. Allah's rituals are a good deal more profound and more interesting than that. And some people say, I just need to know what are the rules, and that's my Hajj, that's the Sunnah. Yeah, the experience is that those who read about the meaning of the Hajj and try to understand the greatness of it will have a much richer experience and will have much more reverence for those places because they get to see at least a drop from the ocean of the immense profundity of the, 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 the place of the, the, the Isra. Uh, this is one meaning of the Hadith that says, Al-Hajju Rahbaniyatu Hadhi Al-Ummah. The Hajj is the monasticism of this Ummah. The monk has to wear a rough hair shirt and takes all kinds of vows, chastity, poverty, obedience, and can't really get into dunya. When you're in the state of ihram, you're in that monastic state, basically. Male or female, there's very severe limits on what you can do. You can't kill animals, you can't, it's, uh, you can't comb your hair, and really, without taking a risk of violation, it's, it's strict. Um, and this ihram is clearly part of the Hajj's technique of snapping us out of our comfortable worldly ways and giving us the state of tajreed, stripping away and directing us towards the real. So if we're looking for some way of putting into words this thing that we feel, and in religion we know this is important, why is it when we finish the prayer and it was a good prayer with a good imam, and we come out and the sun has set and we feel different, uh, something has happened. Can I put that into words? Is it just some kind of emotional high, something firing in the brain or something deeper going on? It's difficult. But we have, alhamdulillah, in our tradition, um, rich um, ways of indicating by ishara why these things are so powerful. And one of the books about the Hajj that I particularly like is... Um, uh, by Charles-André Gillis, who is a uh, French Muslim, uh, who has uh, this book published some years ago now. La Doctrine Initiatique, it's only in French, I think, du pèlerinage à la maison d'Allah, the initiatic doctrine of the pilgrimage to the house of Allah. Paris, 
1982, so he wrote it a long time ago, still going, alhamdulillah, and if you've looked at my little book on Muslims in Europe, you'll see that I cite his book on Muslims and integration um, quite a bit. Uh, he's a student of uh, somebody called Mohammed Abdelaziz uh, Michel Velson, who was a uh, very interesting Romanian diplomat who settled in Paris after the rise of communism and uh, became uh, uh, a leader of, of Tariqa and wrote quite a bit. So Gilis is one of his, his I guess, last surviving active disciples and has written, written quite a bit. And uh, this whole book, which is about mm, the meaning of the Hajj, what is the Kaaba, what is the Tawaf, what is Arafat, um, uh, looking at our tradition, uh, he says that basically it is all summed up as being about realization of the Maqam al-Ubudiyya, the degree of servanthood or slavehood. This rich word, Abd, remember it's in that verse from about the Isra, uh, the Abd, the slave, uh, that the meaning of the Hajj is to remind you of and to urge you to be aware of the fact that you're Allah's slave. And that's the meaning of the labaik, Allahumma labaik. Labaik is what you say to your slave owner when he's asking you for a cup of tea. Labaik. Yeah, I'm, I can't object. Uh, and so we come as slaves, as ibad. And all of the rituals, according to Gilis, are there in order to remind us that that's what we are. And also to uh, help us to demonstrate in actions that this is what we are, that we are Allah. Everything is about servanthood. Not to dunya, you do the tawaf and you forget which way is Burger King and which way is, who knows, I'm dizzy, it's only the Kaaba, it takes us into a new, new, new space. Uh, and all of those practices are there in order to uh, realign us according to this basic human reality of, of the maqam al-ubudiyya, of servitude, of slavehood to God. And it is all about, therefore, complete self-abnegation. This is the rahbaniya, monasticism dimension of it. The self is left behind. And to the extent the self is there, it's going to be grumbling. And people do grumble a lot on hajj. And it's become a decadent thing with the comfort. People no longer have the the months of walking through the desert in order to kind of settle down. Um, you can be in uh, California and then the next day you can be on Arafat and you haven't had the chance to decompress spiritually and this this has really trivialized a lot of people's experience of it. But this is the world that we're in. But nonetheless, the rituals, if you're focusing, will help to knock that stupid distraction and ego out of your head and remind you of what is Important. So if we, uh, the great um, tafsir of Rashid al-Din Maybudi uh, has this nice incident where he's talking about Ibrahim building the Kaaba and he offers his commentary. Rabbana taqabbal minna. We heard this. Ismail and Ibrahim appraising, oh, our Lord, accept this from us. A rebuke came. I commanded you to build the house, and then you lay a favour on me for doing so. I gave you the success to do it. Are you not ashamed to lay a favour on me and say, accept it from us? You have forgotten my favour toward you and mentioned your own act and favour. 
In other words, there's a sense that they're kind of saying, we've done this, so accept it from us, which is not full obudia, according to this ishara. Hmm. Because of the harshness of this rebuke, Ibrahim prayed, keep me and my sons away from worshipping idols. So this is the, the end of that passage. And Na'bud al-Asnam, protect me and my family from worshipping idols. Lord God, in the road of my bosom, friendship and my children's prophethood, seeing our own activity and ascribing it to ourselves, are idols that lie in ambush for us. By your gentleness, remove these idols from the road and remove our being from the midst. Keep on bestowing your favour upon us. So from the point of view of this tafsir, uh, the obudiyya, the servanthood has to be so complete that you claim credit for nothing at all. Uh, and on the Hajj, a lot of people said, hey, I managed to throw all of my stones and then I lost my plastic sandal. As if it's some kind of endurance event, like running a marathon and you kind of uh, can tell people about how you've done things. And I did my seventh tawaf. Well, it was really busy and it took me 10 hours. And mashallah, I've people kind of boast a lot about their experiences uh, that shows that they haven't had the experience those things are there in order to break you and make you realize that you are Allah's slave and they're not there to kind of test you as if you're breaking some kind of record it's not like that at all it's the opposite of that so this taqabbal minna <laughs> yeah even Ibrahim and Ismail are kind of reproached only obudiya it's sami'ana so, the, one of the things that we notice uh, when the, the prophets والسلام, are described as abd, Allah's slave, is that the idea of return also comes into it. So, for one prophet, Ni'mal abd, innahu awwab. Excellent a slave was he, always awwab. Aba is to return, constantly returning. The idea of tawbah is like returning, tabayatubu, to turn around, to return. In kullu man fi samawati wal ardi illa ati rahmani abda. Everything in heavens, the heavens and the earth, shall come to Allah as a slave. In other words, that's the ma'ad, as an abd, we return to Him. Inna wajadnahu sabira ni'mal abd. Innahu awwab. We found him to be patient, an excellent slave. He is awwab, returning. Tabsiratan wa dhikra di kulli abdin munib. As an illumination and a reminder for every abd who is munib. And again, this anaba has the sense of turning. So turning means that we go from the periphery to look at the center again, like that spacecraft near Pluto, whatever it was called, New Horizons, and they couldn't contact it and it was going to be a dead loss. And then they managed to get the thing to turn back towards the sun, which is really distant and face, but it can charge itself up and it gets back into contact. And that's how we should be, not facing nothing, because what is other than Allah and his power and his name is not real. We need to turn around and face face the reality of Tauber, Alba, coming around, and this kind of circularity is implied by this. So Abd and Inaba are closely connected as prophetic qualities, prophetic names in Allah's book. Uh, which is why uh, Mahmoud Shabistari says in his Gulshan Raz that the Hajj basically 
is only two steps. One step away from yourself and one step towards the Lord. That's the essence of it, just two steps. And if you don't have either, <laughs> but you spend a lot on your five-star nonsense at Mina, well, that's not a hajj. There has to be the step away from the self uh, and there has to be the step towards al-wahid, al-haq. So the realization of servanthood, when you realize that you are abd, then you return to the center because that realization is the return to the center because in reality the center is, is what exists. So this is the meaning of abd, munib, uh, which is what we are supposed to be. Now, this idea of the Kaaba somehow being representative of the divine mystery so that our journey from God and back to God is somehow represented sacramentally in the Hajj. So we go from the edges of the earth to the centre of the earth uh, is also very uh, important in our literature. So we find uh, that the, the city of Mecca, sometimes described as Surratul Ard, Surratul Ard, which means the navel of the earth, N-A-V-E-L. What does that mean? Well, the navel, it's about birth, it's about maternity, it's about the point of origin. So, Michel Valson, remember I was talking about him, Makkah uh, Musafa Abdul Aziz, Makkah was the first terrestrial point to emerge from the primordial cosmic ocean. We have a lot of material, some of which is in Tabari, about this. It is from here, or underneath her, that the remainder of the earth came to be just as the human being comes into being through the umbilical cord. So this is, this is what it means when you find in a lot of our poetry, for instance, Makkah as the navel of the earth. Uh, that which supports us is the divine. We seem to be disconnected because we're into our stuff, uh, but we can be reconnected um, because of the divine generosity. So we find a lot of matronal or maternal language uh, in the uh, conception of the Hajj. And one of the things that one could do would be talk, talk about gender symbolism in the Hajj rituals, which is a, a big topic. Um, don't have time for it. Uh, but we note that Makkah is described as Umm al-Qura in the Qur'an, the mother of cities. Uh, and Ibrahim also described as Ummah, and the city is, as it were, kind of the imam of all of the Muslims as they are praying, which leads all of the believers back to the source. The point of the city and these rituals and the Kaaba is to give us an earthly representation of what is an inward journey, not ultimately a physical journey, but an outward enactment that helps us to move along in the spiritual journey within. So. Uh, we find, therefore, that a lot of place names connected to the Hajj are female place names. You think about them. Kaaba, uh, Makkah, Mina, Muzdalifa, Safa, Marwa, Arafat. All of the big places have kind of feminine uh, resonances, and there's a lot that can be said there about the source, the kind of matronal idea of uh, returning back to the point of our, our creation. Um, yeah, time we had uh, another poem. I think uh, this is such a huge topic. Three, seven, five. 
Ja, Farida Din Attar. So this is an example of how one of our classical poets uses the language of moving from ritual to ritual and place to place and the Hajj as an indication of the inward journey back to the place of the Ruh and the divine inspiration and the divine presence, which is the heart. So sometimes we find in our uh, literature the world described as kind of a body of which Makkah is the heart and without the heart there's nothing really. The Hajj is like the, the heart that pumps blood throughout the whole organism of the Ummah and it comes back again rhythmically and it beats every year but there's also an inward meaning of that which is that it's through the purification of the heart and that inward journey that we make, that inward suluk, that inward uh, pilgrimage that we come to uh, to be purified and to discover reality. Uh, and the Holy Prophet وسلم, in his Mi'raj, it was his heart that saw the great mystery. The heart did not deny what it saw. So here is Attar, this is Fitzgerald's translation. And first the veil of search, an endless maze, branching into innumerable ways, all courting entrance but one right, and this beset with pitfall, gulf and precipice, where dust is embers, air a fiery sleet, through which with blinded eyes and bleeding feet the pilgrim stumbles with hyenas howl around and hissing snake and deadly ghoul, whose prey he falls if tempted but to droop, or if to wander famished from the troop for fruit that falls to ashes in the hand, water that reached recedes into the sand. The only word is forward, guide in sight, after him, swerving, swerving, neither net left nor right, thyself for thine old victual by day, at night thine own self's caravanserai, till suddenly, perhaps, when most subdued and desperate, the heart shall be renewed, when deep in utter darkness, by one gleam of glory from the far remote harim, that with a scarcely conscious shock of change shall light the pilgrim towards the mountain range of Arafat, of knowledge, um, the original Persian, of course, the, the terminology is more easily recognised as Hajj language. But this idea of the journey to the Hajj as being a kind of microcosm of life's journey back to the divine source, the mystery of the eternity <coughs> of the Creator, and also the journey within to the heart is something that um, has always resonated with Muslims. Now, another thing also needs to be borne in mind. We've already mentioned the primordiality of the Hajj and the fact that Ibrahim alayhi salam, who with his son is credited with the creation of the Kaaba that we have today, <coughs> is somebody who is pre-Christian, pre-Jewish and is Hanif and Muslima, Muslim but Hanif in that kind of ancient primordial monotheistic sense. And one of the effective things about the Hajj is that it takes us through certain symbols and certain geometries and certain experiences that in a way that we might struggle to define reconnect us with truly ancient times and with some primordial need in human beings. And this is the case with all of our Ibadat. Um, human beings have always had rituals that are timed with the seasons and the rising, setting of the sun, <coughs> the phasings, phases of the moon, uh, a lunar calendar, 
We've always had forms of fasting and so forth. This is what we mean by Deen al-Fitra, the religion of the primordial natural disposition, even though these are enacted in the specific Muhammadan form, uh, which is never to be tampered with still. The form that we have is something that uh, recalls in us something that is truly um, archaic. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the belief is that the, uh, the Kaaba is on a site uh, which was established for worship by Adam salam, when it was just Rabwa Hamra, just a red hill <coughs> or hillock. So let's think about this primordiality and the effect that that has on us. And uh, it clearly has something to do with the deep impact that Hajj clearly has on people. This yearning that we have for the house, <coughs> this sense of recognition that we have when carrying out the rituals and the sense of change that people experience after, after a good Hajj. Uh, uh, let's try and get our heads around this. Well, human beings always, just as they've always had forms of worship, just as they've always had <coughs> sacred ways of getting married, sacred ways of saying farewell to the dead, sacred ways of fasting for our species, which is old, this is normative to us. And there's something in us and in our brain structure that, that requires this and finds it, finds it natural. <coughs> the idea of a sanctuary a temenos with liminal degrees whereby you progress into an area where more things are forbidden and there is a greater degree of sanctuary. Well, we have that as you approach the city. There is, first of all, the miqat, the place where you have to put on the ihram if you're heading straight for Umrah or for Hajj. As the kind of outer boundary that indicates a transition between the profane and the sacred. And then as you approach the city, maybe 10 miles from, uh, from the uh, mosque, there is the haram beyond which non-Muslims cannot pass and where there are strict rules traditionally about you, know, you can't hunt there. And uh, during the... the Hajj season, and generally there's all kinds of rules, like traditionally you're not allowed to build in Mecca with material that isn't sourced inside the Haram area. Um, I think that the, most of the modern hotels there perhaps have not been aware of this particular fatwa, but that, that, that was the tradition out of respect, that you didn't bring in matter from outside, but the stone had to be from the mountains of Mecca and the wood, whatever was available. And, uh, so that's one reason why the city was always quite simple historically. It wasn't an elaborate place like Damascus or Baghdad. Um, so that is another degree of sanctity. And then you step into the mosque itself, al-Masjid al-Haram, where things are stricter still. And beyond that, there's the Kaaba. And this is something that's pretty universal in ancient human structurings of the sacred, a threefold delineation of, of a sanctuary. This is something that is from the fitrah. And um, Ibrahim and his family are declared in the Qur'an as Hunafa, primordial monotheists, not uh, attributing any partners to God. So here's, an, here's one example of this. And it's complex because it's to do with aspects of human psychology that are ancient and inherited and we don't really understand 
And of course, modernity has taken us away from so many of these things, uh, which were normative, we're quite damaged really. And as a result, we're anxious, we're depressed, because we're, uh, we're not living in ways that human beings are designed to live. Uh, but one of the beauties of the forms of Islam is that they haven't been tampered with. And if you go to Mecca, nobody has really had the temerity to interfere with any of those rituals. Even if there's escalators and floodlights and God knows what, but the thing itself is still intact and still accessible. And this is uh, part of the, uh, the, the blessing of Islam. So Azraqi, uh, the earliest historian of Mecca, who is quite early, um, it said that his teachers knew that the Tabi'in. He has this book called uh, The Stories of Mecca, Akbar Mecca, uh, attributes this um, as a divine saying. O oh Adam, this is my temple. This is God's speech to the first of mankind. I made it descend onto earth along with you. Around it men shall turn in tawaf as the angels turn around my throne, and they shall pray towards it as the angels pray towards my throne. So again, this is the verticality of it. This is the idea of al-bayt al-ma'mur, that the hajj is somehow mysteriously an earthly representation of something that is not earthly and not subject to the four points of the compass, but that as we make the tawaf, we are somehow enacting and in touch with, in some symbolic and very unfamiliar way, with the action of the angels who are completely in the state of obodia, necessarily, as they go around the throne with their tasbih and their talbiyah. So this is uh, an idea from very early Islam. Uh, and we find that the throne is, in the Qur'an, the throne of God is supported by eight angels. Eight angels support the throne of Allah. And of course, we're not going to literally interpret that. It's um, known without how, bila kaif. Uh, but we find that the eightfold principle is also part of the architectonics of the Meccan sanctuary. Uh, the uh, traditional eight minarets, the traditional eight paths that led from the arcades to the Kaaba itself that were visible until quite recently between which there was just just uh, gravel. This eightness was something that were, was understood. Uh, and you find this eightfold dimension in, in other sanctuaries as well. So, uh, other things we find would be the idea of the circle, uh, primordial humanity recognized the circle as a symbol of endlessness and therefore of transcendence and of the sacred, uh, which is why the Sikh wears a bangle, because circularity represents the eternity, the endlessness of, of the divine. So I mean, in this country you have all of those ancient Celtic stone circles, Stonehenge, the sea henge thing that they found in North Norfolk, which is on the beach at Hunston, but was made of wood, but was circular and has the progressive adjustment um, from the profane to the sacred. And this is uh, often juxtaposed with the square. So the square is a symbol of emplacement in the world, the four points of the, the compass. Uh, and the circle is the symbol of, of transcendence. So the square within a circle is, is uh, or a circle within a square, uh, classical forms of articulating the, the heaven-earth uh, juxtaposition and, and meeting. <coughs> Temenos is a term that's sometimes used for a, uh, a sacred space. Um, in Jungian psychology, for instance, there's again the idea of uh, 
a sanctuary within ourselves, a circular space which we have to clear, which has a fountain in the middle, um, which can be received when the male and female principles are in balance, where the spirit has triumphed over self, where there's a kind of resolution, we enter this temenos, this, this sanctuary within. Um, so, uh, yeah, we have this idea of circularity indicating uh, sanctuary. Um, and again, you can see even at something like Stonehenge, and we don't know what Stonehenge was, what its functionality was. Those people 5,000 years ago, and there's a wood circle there, which is from 8,000 BC, so that's like um, really back in the Middle Stone Age, very ancient. We have no idea what those people were, whether they were even Druids. It's all mythological. So all of those ravers who go there on the, the summer solstice and hum and meditate and do yoga and take ecstasy and so forth, it's just, it's sad, but in a sense it's also a reminder that even in this profane woke culture of ours, people have a sense that they need to recognize these ancient sacred things of the rising, the setting of the sun, the moon, the land, the circle, the sacred space, the temenos. Yeah, we still know, despite our distance from scripture and organized religion, that there's something in this for us. Um, it's, uh, yeah, interesting, an attempt thousands of years after those people died to revive a sanctuary because the human desire for religion and for the sacred is can't be killed. So the, the octagon, the eight points, the four points, the circle, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, another classic example of that. Uh, and the Dome of the Rock, the Qubba to Sahra is the, one of the other great sanctuaries of Islam. And uh, we could say quite a bit about the temple of Sayyidina Suleiman, the Ma'bad, the Haikal in Jerusalem, which has resemblances with the Meccan sanctuary but different as well. Um, what sort of differences are we looking at? Well, if you've been to Al-Quds, and it's required in the Hadith, uh, it's one of the places that the Holy Prophet tells us we have to go to. Alhamdulillah, if you've got a Western pa passport, you can go there. Um, that, they call it the foundation stone, and the Crusaders thought that that was the Holy of Holies. The rabbis were really not sure whether that was the Holy of Holies or whether it was some other site, maybe it was the place of the outer altar, they're not sure. But there's still, in the design of the temple in Jerusalem, a sense of this universal human desire to have concentric courts uh, leading towards something that is, that is uh, extraordinarily sacred. And of course, the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem is also kind of rectangular or square like the, the Kaaba. So this is just something that came to my attention recently that indicates our awareness, like these kids at Stonehenge, that we are called, that we have this yearning for the sacred, and that we need intrinsically in our fitra the sense of a, a ritual that returns us to the centre. So this is a poem by somebody called Shahbanu Aliani, and it's in this nice collection of poems I found recently, Shadow of the One, an anthology of inspirational poems from Zawiya Ibrahim. So it's called Answer the Call. Come, is it fair to ignore what you've known but forgotten and can no longer recall except in a dream? How does this secret reveal itself suddenly without thought or effort or help that can be seen? Who is talking when you weep? Who is listening deeper than deep? What call is your heart yearning to answer that is beyond the symbols we use when we speak? 
Answer this call, even if you think you can't hear it. This, my friend, is the problem, that you think. Answer this call in whatever way you know. Kiss the ground with your forehead, dance madly, sing loudly, talk to trees. Don't silence your heart. Answer this call before it's too late. That's precisely the... That when we say the talbiya, le bake, we are saying, yes, we need this. We need to go through this this earthly maze of rituals in order to enact within ourselves this recentering that will connect us once again to the vertical. It's a fundamental ancient human yearning to engage with the axis mundi, this center of, of the world. So the Kaaba symbolizing the heart, symbolizing this inward journey that is enacted by outward forms. <coughs> Here's another one. This is by uh, my late friend Abelheim Moore, uh, which uh, Sparrow on the Prophet's Tomb collection of poems. And this is one about uh, the city of Mecca. I've been to the centre of the earth. Jules Verne didn't get it right. It's not down in cavernous bowels of igneous rock swathed in sulphurous fumes. The serpents of the self and its idolised distractions are the only monsters to come at you out of the rocks. I have been to the Kaaba at Mecca, as pure as a heartbeat, as stunning in time and space as a precious diamond, decreed by God to be cut by the hand of man to mirror his glory. All is clarity there and concentration. The ears are filled with a joyous noise. The eyes behold God's plan in the masses of humanity that pass there, that reduce in every case to one, one heart before, one God in one moment in time, the most public place on earth for the most private encounter with our Lord. I've sat among its people. I've stood in the first rows of prayer facing the house, black cloth covering stone. I've bowed and prostrated a swallow's wheel and a sky so saturated with light as to scintillate with a jagged, indelible brightness. This is still man's major crossroad. Around the Kaaba, even the worst of men, for a while, regained their innocence and are renewed. If they are lost in awe and tears flow, and they call on Allah with each heartbeat, they are in paradise. If they walk around the house of Allah chatting and distracted, they are still in God's garden. So powerful is the presence there. The Kaaba is of a blackness that is not black, of a dimension that has no size, of a cubeness that has no shape in space, Neither size, shape, nor colour define it, yet it is such and such a dimension, in roughly cube shape, with a golden door set in its side, and a golden rain spout over one edge at top, made of square blocks of grey stone, caulked with white, and covered over with fine black brocade to the ground, embroidered at top, <coughs> with golden calligraphy of God's word. I'll skip a bit. This is the heart of the world, the self of the human, the spirit of our consciousness in life and death. Distinctions blurred and distinctions sharpened at the same time. <coughs> Heavens rolled up, seas dried, earth prints erased. No one's gone anywhere. No one's done anything. No one's taken a step or even the minutest breathtaking space of separation <coughs> away from the house of Allah at the centre of the earth of mankind <coughs> in space in Mecca 
in what is now Saudi Arabia, January the 6th, 1996. <coughs> That's a recent example of this extraordinary outpouring of poems that the Ummah has produced that indicate that one is, when one is there, one is in a different type of space, and that there is a form of recognition, a kind of sharpening, that the unfamiliarity gives us a sense of homecoming. <coughs> so, Malka has all of the classic features of a sacred sanctuary that embedded somewhere in our human collective consciousness we crave and also recognize. One of the things you see when you go on Hajj is that most people who you are a pilgrim with have never been there before and the practices are more or less all new, unfamiliar, really unlike anything else in Islam. Going round something, throwing stones at pillars, standing on a plane, collecting stones, it's all new. And yet there's an extraordinary sense that they know what this is and that they are immediately relaxing into something that comes naturally to them. Uh, and what that natural thing is, is something deep down, inaccessible to human reason, in the fitra, that we are pilgrims naturally because our distant, unknown, nameless ancestors did these things and knew that they were healing. So, Mecca has all of the classic features, and you can, for instance, go to Glastonbury in this country, which is a kind of New Age pilgrimage place, but has sacred significance, supposedly the oldest church in the world, Glastonbury Tor, and there's Neolithic circles and things there. It's a very resonant and spiritual kind of place, although it's only 0.001% of anything you'll find in, in uh, uh, the Hejaz. Uh, but still there's something, and there has been a Muslim presence there, witnessing presence for several decades now, that you find in these places that there are certain features that we do find in Mecca in a kind of purified and absolute sense. <coughs> a sacred well, maybe you could visit the Chalice Well <coughs> in Glastonbury, for instance. There's a sacred well in Mecca, a sacred mountain, Jebel and Noor, sacred geometry, so there are circles, straight lines, planes, um, there is uh, circles, squares, rules of purification. So you have all of these things that you'll get even in small sanctuaries and that human beings by their fitri nature recognize as good and healing and necessary to us. But what's different is not something oriental because the Hajj is universal and there's something about it which is so ancient that it transcends cultures. If you're wearing the ihram, you don't really belong to any particular look or style. The Kaaba is pre-architectural. It's just a cube. Everything there is, is really ancient and it doesn't belong to East or West. It's, it's for everybody. Mathabat al-Linnas, a place of resort for mankind. Uh, and it has a universality as a result of this. Uh, contrast it then with the uh, sanctuary in Jerusalem at the time of Sayyidina Suleiman, there is the Holy of Holies, Rodesh Ha Rodesh, which is kind of the Jerusalem Kaaba, but it can't be approached by everybody. 
their Sharia was different to our Sharia. So only the high priest can go inside their sanctuary and only on the Day of Atonement. And he puts the blood of sacrifice on the place where the Ark of the Covenant used to be and he lights incense and he's the only one who's allowed. And even if builders have to go, they can't walk in, they have to be lowered in on ropes and it's a whole thing. It's very exclusive. And then there are... Uh, Uh, boundaries which clearly limit the universality of it all. Um, <clears throat> so one of the boundaries is that there is uh, certainly Gentiles, as it were, not allowed into the Meccan sanctuary, um, apart from a few fiqh exceptions. It's a city just for Muslims, a forbidden city. But in the temple in Jerusalem, women had their own court the court of the women, which is the second court of the temple, they could not go any closer to the centre of, of the sacred. Whereas in the Ishmaelite sanctuary, which is Hajar sanctuary, she's buried in the Hajar after all, um, which is included in the area we do tawaf around, uh, that it is, as we indicated, there's a very feminine and matronal dimension to this, and the women are there, and in many ways less segregated in our sac most sacred place than they are just about anywhere else in the traditional Ummah because you know, the women have a kind of wedge that comes towards the Kaaba and then it's moved and they try to... But it's, it's very difficult in the Tawaf actually to enforce any kind of real gender segregation, especially if people with their, their families. So in our instantiation of uh, the architecture of the sacred, the women are certainly uh, included. <clears throat> so Abrahamic but universal. Because the Holy Prophet says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, other prophets were sent only to their own people, for I am sent to all mankind. And Arafat is the anticipation of the final judgment, the Ma'ad, when everybody is together. Just as the stone, Al-Hajr al-Aswad, is the sign of the day of Alastubi Rabbikum, am I not your Lord? And when we salute, make our istilam of the stone, we are reaffirming that Bala Shahidna, which we said to the Creator at the beginning, before the beginning of time, the Mabda is there, the beginning, but also the end of Arafat, when everything is brought together again, and we stand, when all mankind stands to the Lord of the world, there is an anticipation of the Qiyamah, of the Wuquf of Arafat, and uh, that will be an inclusive time. <coughs> We were all together at the beginning of sacred history, all together at the end of sacred history, and <coughs> the Hajj reminds us of both of those things. So it is not a particularist sanctuary. It is not the sanctuary of a particular people or tribe or place. Uh, one of the things that he does, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he purifies the sanctuary, he's sitting on al-qaswa and pointing with his rod at each of the idols of the Arabs, and he says, Truth has come, falsehood has fled away, falsehood will always fall away, and they will fall down uh, on their faces and they break. Now that is not only a purification of idolatry, but also a purification of the temple of tribal particularity. The Arab religions are at an end, tribal specifics and places are at an end, and now these sanctuaries of Islam are to be for all 
nations, which is what happened when the temple was opened up again by Sayyidina Omar ibn al-Khattab, the third temple, which is there to this day, which Sayyidina Isa says, shall be a house of prayer for all nations, mm. which it never was in the time of Suleiman. It's for everybody. The whole Ummah used to go there, uh, and their ethnic specificity didn't matter. <clears throat> so universalism, mm. that the idolatry which was connected with tribalism has been banished, and it's mathabata linnas. And when you go there, you see it's the most multicultural, multi-ethnic place on earth. <coughs> so we, we have this. And the inclusion of women, I, I found a very nice thing, which I don't want to, to leave out, which is that uh, women in Mecca have always been, you know, they, they want, wanted to be near to Allah's house. And one of the, the old traditions of Mecca was the Day of the Women. Uh, which was the 29th of Rajab. Rajab was always a, an important time of uh, celebration in the city of Mecca. But Ibn Jubair, on his trip from Andalusia, reports this. The 29th of Rajab, which was a Thursday, was reserved exclusively for the women. They emerged from each of their lodgings after many days' preparation, similar to the ones made before visits to the noble tombs. There is not on that day a single woman in Mecca who does not present herself at the sacred mosque. The Banu Shaiba, after they come to open the noble door, according to custom, hasten to leave the Kaaba and leave it empty for the women. <clears throat> Men too leave the area of the Tawaf and the Hijr. There remains not a single man around the blessed house. The women hasten so quickly to enter that the Banu Shaiba are scarcely able to go down from the noble house through the midst of them. The women form themselves in lines and then get all mixed and tangled as they try to get in altogether. There are cries, shouts, tahlils, takbirs, and the jostling repeats the spectacle of the Yemenite Sarwa Bedouin during their stay in Mecca. <coughs> After continuing thus for half a day, they sort themselves out into circumambulating tawaf and visiting the Hijr. They find peace in kissing the black stone, touching the corners of the Kaaba. It is for them a great day, <coughs> their day, brilliant and radiant. Usually, when they're with the men, they're left apart. They look upon the noble house without being able to go in. They contemplate the black stone, but do not touch it at all. In all that, which is their lot, it is only looking. And chagrin confuses and shakes them. They are permitted only the circumambulation, and that segregated. So this particular day, which comes around again every year, they celebrate as the noblest of feasts, and they make elaborate preparations. So that's a reminder that the haram maintain certain forms of decorum, but it is in principle, even the Holy of Holies itself, open to women, and this is part of the Mathabata Linnas, that the differences of race, as Malcolm X saw in his Hajj, and these other contingent human differentia become insignificant because everybody is in the state of obodia equivalent. Mm -hmm. And uh, the hearts uh, and the Kaaba have this relationship that pays no attention to gender, race, or anything else. So I just wanted to um, end again with uh, my last little text. Lady Evelyn Cobbold, another of the uh, English Hajjis and the first uh, British woman to have left a uh, a narration. She was there in the 1930s. <clears throat> and this is her first uh, visit to the Holy City. And 
the meaning of the black stone. It stands for a symbol. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is in the Psalms. <clears throat> the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Ishmael was looked upon as rejected and the covenant made with the children of his half-brother Isaac, the Israelites. Yet it was that rejected stone, the black stone, that became the headstone of the Kaaba, the place where Hajar and Ishmael were cast out. The black stone is unhewn, cut out of the mountains without hands, from the book of Daniel. Christ made reference to it when he told the Israelites that the vineyard, the kingdom of God, would be taken away from them and given to other husbandmen. And again, did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? Matthew 21, 42. And again, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation which bringeth forth the fruit thereof. Matthew 21, 43. <coughs> so this stone is kissed, not as an idol, but as that symbol of the rejection of uh, a form which eventually became the cornerstone, in a symbol of the rejection of a nation which eventually became the cornerstone in the divine order of the universe. And that's the other aspect of the the inclusivity of al-Masjid al-Haram, uh, gender, ethnicity, but also rich and poor. <coughs> and it is the Ishmaelite sanctuary. And as I've said before, in today's age, that story of the bifurcation, the parting of the ways between Isaac and Ishmael, has turned out to be gigantically significant. Look at the walls in Palestine, who is on one side, who is on the other, walls everywhere rich and poor have never been uh, more fiercely uh, differentiated. Uh, the disparity between rich and poor, powerful and powerless in today's world, accentuated by technology and <coughs> um, forms of control, has never been more extreme. But we as Muslims are the Bani Ismaila, uh, and the one which, uh, which is the tribe cast out by the dominant narrative, but which in the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the great kind of surprise of sacred history becomes the one who are chosen, who become the people who maintain these principles in a sanctuary when all the other sanctuaries have been desecrated or lost. So we are the Bani Ismail and as the outcast and the poor and the misunderstood, uh, when you go on Hajj you see most people are pretty poor, not particularly educated, uh, they all love the house and they all know what to do. Uh, but that is also, not only is it the world's greatest gathering of races, but it is also the world's greatest place where rich and poor stand together and where the poor of the world get together. There's nowhere else where they can be together, engage with each other equally. Ibadallahi ikhwana, as slaves of Allah, as brothers, uh, united by this uh, indispensable principle of obudiyya, which is really the only principle of a true humanism. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring back the crowds to the Haram and make it the great place on earth that demonstrates Allah's special love for the poor, for the outcast, for the refugees, for people who are underestimated um, and may he bring repentance to the hearts of the global elites and may he make it as it has been for so many people down the centuries uh, a place of turning from the outward to the inward, from the periphery to the center, from falsehood to truth, from idolatry to tawheed, 
um, from injustice to justice and from illusion to the reality of uh, the, the, the true God, Rabbil Alameen, the Lord of Ibrahim and Ismail and Ishaq. So may Allah, inshallah, give us a strong niyyah now to make the Hajj and the Umrah. The Umrah is also required. And inshallah, to bring us together in those places and to give us a good Hajj, an undistracted Hajj, a Hajj of fraternity that cleanses us and inshallah sets us up through these amazing, mysterious, but purifying rituals so that the rest of our lives are inshallah uh, lived in the state of attachment to the Kaaba and to the Lord of the Kaaba. Barakallahu fikum, wal'afu minkum, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Support the next generation of Muslim thinkers by donating today at cambridgemuslimcollege.ac.uk.